0: episode 5 of the Great Lakes Horror Company, brought to you by members of the Horror Writers Association, Ontario Chapter, where we discuss the business of horror with a
1: focus on the written word. Let's meet our panelists for today. Hi, I'm Stafford Jerome, and I'm a horror author. Hi, I'm Bill
2: Snyder. I'm the eater of many cookies, and I like to write scary words. I'm Andrew Robertson.
3: I'm a horror fan and a fanboy.
0: I'm Monica S. Kubler. I'm a young adult horror author and a horror journalist.
3: So that's our panel for today. Today, we're going to be discussing the following topic. Is there such a thing as too much horror? We're looking at balancing the blood and gore with a plot line. We're talking about blood-soaked classics like American Psycho or 120 Days of Sodom, authors like Brian Keene, Jack Ketchum, and Poppy Z. Bright. So to start the conversation, the first question that I'm going to ask is, what is the one image that sticks out in your mind when you're thinking of blood-chilling mega-gore from a book or a movie with imagery so uncomfortable you had to close your eyes? And I know this, this panel maybe doesn't want to admit that this things so scary that they've closed their eyes or so horrible, but sometimes something gives you that skin-crawling
1: reaction. Who wants to start? One of the things that... um I don't know if it's mega gore, but it made me so scared I had to close my eyes was when I saw the exorcist, I snuck in underage, of course, and uh, when the actual dresser jumps, and I know that's not gore, but I mean, I have so many images in my mind of like stakes and eyeballs and heaving breasts with blood trickling down and things like that. Um, There... There are a lot of horrific images stuck in my brain that make me want to cry.
3: <laughs> so maybe for you it's a bit more psychological. Like the blood and gore don't get you, it's it's a psychological effect. I know when they when they did the re-release of Exorcist and she comes down the stairs <laughs> backwards in the crab walk, that scared the shit out of me.
1: Yeah, that frightened me greatly. <laughs> like I, I haven't even seen the movie since they added that because it's too terror like that just really terrified me. I don't know why. It just so, did
3: let me just put out there the two of the worst horror scenes for me uh one is the hobbling scene from misery because i think there's there's certain physical reactions you have like when someone's drilling a kneecap and your kneecaps are just screaming you know the hobbling scene really spoke to me there and the other one is in eli roth's horrible horrible hostile film when they snip the achilles tendon Oh, And I mean, that's brutal. right at the beginning. Oh,
1: that was brutal. That oh, the just, movie
3: was brutal. I it almost had sequels. to stop watching. And then I didn't stop watching, and it's given me nightmares ever since. So yeah. he did his job.
4: Yeah.
2: Well,
3: I was going to agree with the hostile one, because mm-hmm. they also did a similar
2: scene in The House of Wax with Paris Hilton. Same idea. That's right. But uh, the same image, same for me, has always been the pinprick or eye knife coming straight to the eye. Poke. That's the one that always gets me. Because... splatter splatter in and of itself just makes me laugh because I watch a lot of Japanese splatter movies and the horror that they try to impress is like it's a lot of blood and guts it's really not even close to being real because when you see a real body actually go through stuff that's creepy but you never actually experience it on screen
0: so we're not going to ask
3: how he knows that
2: (laughs) (laughs)
0: sorry I was going
1: to say it's like uh, the lone wolf and cub movies where it's yeah. like fountains of blood yeah. and it's so bizarre and you know and the baby buggy with the knives and not yeah it, vampire it's just so girl versus
2: frankenstein girl has this one scene where the one girl just chops the one guy's head right off and all it is is like maybe about 400 liters of blood geysering out of this guy's neck it's
1: like mm, yeah
2: funny that's it
1: one thing that grossed me out when i was a teenager uh, but it doesn't anymore because I've been through so much in real life, was uh, in Rosemary's Baby when she starts, like, gnawing on the raw liver. But then once I was pregnant with my own children, I found myself craving raw liver in the stores as well. And then there was a movie I saw on Netflix only a couple of months ago, and I can't remember what it was, but it was kind of like a Rosemary's Baby thing. And she's in the grocery store staring at the raw meat. And she actually takes out a steak and starts chowing down in the store. And I thought, yes, finally, someone else finally, like, embrace this i have an iron deficiency i need help now <laughs> <You
3: know? laughs> so monica you being at room org you see a lot of the different levels of gore
0: and horror the full spectrum how, how does this speak to you i'm kind of with bill when it's over the top and it's like tons of blood and entrails and you know just crazy crazy amounts of gore it's it's funny and gross and not really scary. Um and I'm also with Sephra for the things that affect me, affect me on a more psychological level. So for me, I really I can't watch extreme sexual violence against women at all. And that is something that and as a personal thing, I just I honestly can't handle it. I will not sleep So, you know, I think if you kind of went out there and you talked to every horror fan, every horror fan would have, you know, the things that don't bother them at all. And then the one thing that really gets under their skin for, you know, perhaps a reason in their past or perhaps just because it's something that's always kind of freaked them out a little bit. I I think
3: that's probably why the, the whole body horror genre freaks people out so much, because the last thing you want is for your body to betray you in some way. Um, now, moving to the written word, we've got several HWA Ontario members that, that have written in the extreme horror genre. Um, what are your thoughts on that genre, and are you a fan, and who are your favorites?
0: I absolutely love extreme horror in the written form, which is really funny because all that stuff like the extreme sexual violence against women that I can't watch visually on screen because I find it incredibly traumatizing, I can totally read in books. On the written page, it doesn't bother me because I think when you're reading, your imagination is sort of filling in the blanks for you, and my imagination isn't going to fill in something that's going to traumatize me no matter how fucked up the words on the page are, whereas when I'm watching a movie, I'm not in charge of those images. The director and the film crew and everyone working on the picture are in charge of those images they're giving me.
3: I think maybe with the written word, you can choose to slow down. i I know in high school when everyone was talking about American Psycho and oh you've got to read it and there's this scene and the habitrail and the gerbils or whatever when I got to that part I knew that I did not want to read it and I admit I skipped that chapter and I read the rest of the book but that was you know that was my choice to move ahead I've never gone back to reread it but I mean there, there is enough in there I mean it, I don't think I missed something <laughs> <laughs> what Monica said
1: Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, extreme horror, um, uh, we had a great heyday in the 90s. We had Skip Inspector and, and Bill Nutman, Clive Barker was just bursting out. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so many great horror writers, and I loved it. I, I had come from. Well, I was about 15 or 16 when Stephen King started so I was, I was teething on King but then this whole new genre popped out literally exploded out and I loved it I loved the splatterpunk and um, I had been a very squeamish kind of teenager 18 19 20 year old but then once I hit my late 20s which is when splatterpunk happened I was more able to read it and not throw up and you know and I loved it I just thought it was so cool and a lot of my work, you know, you can tell that I like that stuff Because a lot of my work is very extreme And then I have work that's very quiet And I think writers can do whatever they want I don't think there's such a thing as going too far And um, I know nowadays they're calling it oh, What are they calling it now? It's not a splatterpunk It's not torture porn But well, a lot That's of, my
2: favorite term that they keep using hmm? Torture porn
1: Torture porn? Yeah, you know, and you have um, oh, there's just so
3: many people. I can't even. Okay. There, there's a lot of different names for it, but uh, you saying you know that you've you've written in the genre in in some of your work, and I think I know exactly what you're talking about. Virgins in a <laughs> bathtub. Um, in, in your opinion, as a writer, what's what's the author's intent in taking things to that extreme? What is the the result or the feeling that you want your reader to get from that?
1: Well, I guess with that sort of thing like the virgin in the bathtub you're you're trying to prove how evil the, the you know like the, the monster is or the character you know um when people are doing extreme things it's should be because it's part of the story or part of the character's motivation you just don't like throw it in well i guess some people do <laughs> but for me i try to have motivation and for me it's to show you know like this is bad and i think part of it comes from it takes a lot to scare me these days and I'm really just trying to scare myself and and that's what happens when you read and write a lot of horror for you know 20, 30, 40, 50 years you get jaded and it's it's, gets I guess it's like a drug it's harder to get the high you know so when I'm writing I always try to write something that I myself would want to read and yeah so that's why I raise the bar on myself a lot. Bill
3: for yourself I know that you watch a lot of films you know you've got books films reading etc what uh, for you what's the intent I think maybe I'm asking you more as a fan when you watch it what do you want to get out of it
2: well on the one side is exactly what Zephyr said is um, you're trying to explore and show the depth of how bad that character is Uh, talking partly to what Monica was saying about the sexual extremes in some cases I won't mention Dario Argento's Mother of Tears. (laughs) Don't watch that. Um, They're showing an extreme amount of okay, what's really bad in the world? What's really bad going on in society? What's bad? How bad can humanity get at some point? And then the idea being is to somehow show the good characters getting past that. And that's ultimately what I think any of these types of stories would normally show or try and deride is and that oh, and then no, they didn't survive because they really were stupid, sort of thing. But the idea is that the potential is always there to escape whatever bad kind of crap is happening, however extreme, however extreme it gets.
0: I think, though, at the same time, there is a portion of creators out there in the genre that are out there to attempt to push their audience's boundaries. They do want to shock. They do want to titillate perhaps in ways that people aren't used to be you know, used to being titillated. And, you know, horror is a medium where you can go balls out if you want, with gore, with violence, with anything. And I think there's a certain amount of creators that really embrace that and they want to see how far they can take that.
3: I was actually thinking about the Italian exploitation films today, the cannibal films where they ended up in court uh because they were certain that this woman had been killed on film and they had to bring her into the courtroom show exactly how it was done that she was not impaled to death that she you know she had just stood on something and and, you know that that was the end of that um so moving away from that have you ever been reading a book and had to put it down because it was just too much
0: no
1: oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> many times well when I was younger because yeah I was reading a lot of that Splatterpunk stuff <laughs> it can get to you it can you know all those zombies and it was Skip Inspector did the zombie thing back then and then it came back now oh yeah I've, I've had to put things down zombies never go out of style
3: but I feel like your answer for putting a book down is going to be no <laughs> uh, not for the extremes the only time I've ever put a book down is because it was boring I think that's fair, fair. that's it I think I've already answered because I've admitted to skipping a chapter of American Psycho because I was <laughs> just not into reading about that. I got to the nail gun part though, hey. so hey. <laughs> so for your own writing, and uh, I'm going to start with Monica. Uh, when you are writing, what are your own limits? Where where have you chosen to to draw a line, or is it subject specific?
0: It's subject specific. I write for uh, I write for a teenage audience, so. You know, there's elements of extreme horror and certain types of violence that you can do a lot with YA these days, but there's still places where you're not going to go. So, you know, if I eventually wrote some adult horror fiction, I personally don't think I would have a problem going to those places, but as an author, you have to be aware of your target audience and... You know what is appropriate for that target audience if you're not writing you know for the grown-ups in the house.
1: Mm-hmm. Safra? Yeah I you know as a mother um, I'm often toying with like how far is too far when it comes to kids and stuff and I tend to not have children in my recent worlds um like right now I'm doing a 12 book series and they're all witches and they're all single but no one has kids I don't even think there's kids in the town um and it's just because that's because I, the witches
3: ate them the witches is? all
1: ate them in the gingerbread <laughs> house yeah you know Because so I was thinking about that the other day I'm like I got no kids in this town like what's happening but I'm, I'm Check just seeking, and... yeah exactly <laughs> But it is an erotica focus so I feel like it's kind of creepy to involve children anyways when in you know these are erotic books first then they are horror mystery whatever um, but I have done things where I've killed off kids um, you know and one of you know my not I don't want to say favorite but a story that I had a hard time selling, but did sell and did move people, was based on a real incident with my son when he was just a little kid and nearly got killed by the subway train. Um, so you, you can, I find ways to try and understand my own horrors when it comes to children, but I don't want to write about actually killing children, On, but I may change that tune, you know. Um, and when it comes to animals, I'm a huge animal lover, but I have killed animals in my books. And I'll probably kill some in future books. I doubt I'll kill any in this 12-book series I'm doing because romance audience probably doesn't like that. <laughs> so no dead unicorns. We know no that's not going to happen. No dead unicorns.
3: Bill?
2: I think the whole point of writing is the exploration of what your limits are. And I haven't actually ever hit them but then i'm not actively pursuing extreme uh writing styles like that so it's i don't think there's a limit for me but at the same time i'm not pursuing a limit however i do think rape scenes are probably never going to be in anything i write Mm -hmm. just because it's a personal i don't really think that's cool uh but yeah that's pretty much as far as i go on that Mm -hmm. Moving to our interview segment now, for this episode, Suzanne Church will be speaking with Sandra Casturi. Sandra is a poet, writer, and editor, and the co-publisher of the World Fantasy Award-nominated and British Fantasy Award-winning press, Cheesine. We'll be right back after the interview.
4: Hello, and welcome to the Great Lakes Horror Company Podcast interview segment. I'm Suzanne Church, and tonight I have the great fortune of speaking with Sandra Casturi. Sandra is a poet, writer, and editor, and also the co-publisher of Cheesine Publications, winner of the HWA Specialty Press Award, World Fantasy Award, and British Fantasy Award. Born in Estonia, to an Estonian mother and Sri Lankan father, she now lives in Canada. She is the co-founder, with Helen Marshall, of the Toronto Specific Colloquium and the National Chioscuro Reading Series. So Sandra, the cheese series has taken on a life of its own, separate from cheesing, spreading from Toronto to cities across Canada, including Ottawa, Peterborough, Winnipeg, Vancouver, and Guelph. Please tell our listeners who might never have attended one what makes a cheese series night so awesome. I think,
5: uh, well, the big one, the obvious one, of course, is that it's. I think the only national reading series that exists that is entirely genre focused. We're a reading series dedicated to SF, fantasy, and horror and that's all we do. Um, We have uh, fiction and poetry, because yes, there is in fact horror poetry and that does not mean just poetry that is horrific, because lord knows there's plenty of that, but uh, it it is uh, actually poetry that's dedicated to genre, which is great. I mean, if you think about it, the Iliad is really a dark fantasy or, or horror poem, at least I maintain that it is. Um, but anyway, so we, yeah, we started off in Toronto, and and uh, it was one of those field of dreams, if you build it, they will come kind of things, and it looked like people were really enthusiastic. They, they loved it, and uh, we have a dedicated crowd who comes out every month. It's the third Wednesday of every month in Toronto at the Round Venue down in Kensington Market, listeners, so if you're in the area, come down. And we have three authors a night and we have Kari Marin, uh, our, our dedicated ukulelist, if that is a word. So she uh, skewers genre tropes uh, on her ukulele, which are always hilarious and very well received. And we have a lot of fun. I think the appeal is that we're not terribly serious about it. It, it is a chance to schmooze and hang out with your friends, other writers, publishers, editors, you know, just readers and fans. People who enjoy uh, genre fiction and poetry and, and, and want to have a cocktail. And uh, and that's something that's appealing to a lot of people. And uh, Matt Moore came to me, I don't know, I guess it was a few years ago now, and he said he was thinking about starting up a reading series in Ottawa. And, you know, did I have any suggestions? And I said, well, why don't you make it Chief Series Ottawa? And then it's sort of uh, an affiliated branch and with a built-in brand. And so he went on from there, and Colleen Anderson uh, started up the Vancouver one. And then we had Derek Newman still with Peterborough and uh, Angela Keeley with Guelph. And we have plans for Calgary and Edmonton to start up this year. And there are some talks for Montreal and Halifax as well. So we're going to own the nation eventually. i want to have a traveling one going to the Yukon. It's very exciting.
4: I fear the sudden and inevitable moment when chi scene takes over the world. But for now, I'm glad you're just sticking with Canada.
5: <laughs> That's right. Don't want to get too big for our bridges.
4: Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. I was reading online that you're currently working on two projects. One is a story collection called Mrs. Kong and Other Monsters, and the other is a poetry collection called Snake Handling for Beginners. I want to talk about your poetry for a few minutes. In my experience, your words are exquisite and dark, or to put them together, exquisitely dark. In terms of process, do you find that when you you're going through the first draft of a poem, do you tend to rush through it and try to just capture the soul of the piece as quickly as you can while it's still in your head? Or are you more of the kind of writer that pauses each time you need to pick that perfect word? I think
5: I'm I'm more of a write it all in one go. For poetry, certainly fiction doesn't operate the same way, at least not for me. I think very once in a while in my life, I have been lucky enough to just have this uh, poem spring out of my head like you know Athena out of Zeus and and there it is and it's finished and it really doesn't need anything to be done to it and that is not frequently. It's mostly I get it down. Um, nowadays I, I'm part of the Muse Cooperative Poetry Workshop and we meet twice a month and I usually uh, have something for each one and I'll have it and then people will give feedback and that allows me to tweak it and make editorial changes and, and I think that that's a really useful process for me. Because I don't think, most of us don't really, our first drafts are never perfect. Like I said, a few times in my life I've had that moment of when, like, ah, oh, there it is, fully realized. It's like suddenly giving birth to a grown child or something. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Because then you don't have to pay for university or change diapers or anything like that. You can just send <laughs> the little would, poem on its way. That would be spine. perfect. That
4: would be perfect. I, yeah. <laughs> and
5: then they're out of the house and you you, you have your life. So that's I like to send my portrait to the universe like that. Uh, sadly, this does not usually occur. So, yes, there is work to be done. Um, But I think that from a purely practical point of view, most poetry is shorter than fiction. So it allows you to just sort of get it out and finish it quite quickly compared to, say, writing a novel over six months to a year. I mean, a poem you can you can write in an afternoon or less. You can do it in, in 10 minutes if you're really under the gun. Um, but the key to writing is so often, well, just finish it. And, you know, people are always asking for writing advice, you know. Oh, well, you know, what do I do? You know, who, do, who should I talk to? Who do I need to know? It's always a big secret. Who should you know? And the really practical advice is, of course, well, you should probably write something first. Write the book. Write the story. Write the poem. They're like, no, no, no. But, you know, after that, after that, what do I do then? How about you just write something first and finish it? And that is really the key part. And so often people don't seem to quite
4: grasp that at first. Yeah, I think that's probably a common problem in general. It is hard to finish. I think a lot of people struggle with that. Oh, yeah. All darkness aside, do you ever get the urge to write a light and fluffy story as a kind of a palate cleanser?
5: I've written funny things. I've I've done stuff like that and jokey stuff, which I guess is fluffier. Right now I'm actually working on a kid's TV show, an animated kid's TV show, but even that is, is a fantasy series and so on and certainly has dark elements because it's fantasy, of course. The basic fantasy tropes are good versus evil. So it, there is that. So there is some darkness in that. But I think that is probably much more lighthearted and, and friendly. It's not all the darkest of dark, 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 darkity darknesses, which, by the way, is an anthology I totally want to do and we'll call it that. But,
4: uh, yeah, sometimes... I want to um, be in that <laughs> anthology.
5: <laughs> yes. Uh, Michael Rowe and I uh, talk about that all the time. We think it would be absolutely hilarious. You know, I think maybe it's, I mean, is it my nature? Is it—is it just that this is what I'm attracted to is the darker side of things? I don't know, possibly.
4: Well, next I think I will address the glory that is cheesing publications, which includes, of course, <laughs> uh, the Chi Teen Young Adult line and the Chi Graphic, the new graphic novel line. From the very beginning, when you and Brett Savory sat down to, to map out this new venture, did you think to yourself – did you see or have a sense of the size and scope of what Cheezine would eventually become?
5: Uh, no, we had no idea. I think it's adorable that you think we sat down and planned any of this. Uh, that is completely not the case. Um, for those of uh, the listeners who don't know, um, Cheezine Publications uh, actually came out of uh, Cheezine.com, the online magazine that Brett started back in 1997, and then I came on board in 1999, and, and it was the full title is the Chiara Scuro Treatments of Light and Shade in Words which, of course, is unwieldy. So, you know, you just call it cheesing.com And uh, we're paying writers pro rates for their short fiction and poetry and and uh, won a Stoker Award. And it was all very exciting. And, and we loved it. And then Brad actually said to me in, in 2008, what do you think, you know, what about doing Cheezing as print books? And I literally that that was a conversation. What do you think about doing it? And I said, ah, fuck it, let's do it. And that is how great business decisions get made, is I, you know, I love to tell this story. And we did two books that first year, and uh, and then the next year we did five, and the year after 10, and then 12, and now we're up to, like, do, I think, between 20 to 22 print books a year, and another, and all of our books are, of course, ebooks, but we also do another three or 4 ebook only releases per year now, too. Um, and, and really, we, it was just kind of like, well, we like to read this kind of stuff, and we like it as books, so maybe other people will, too. And, uh, and other people like what we were doing, and we were lucky enough to get uh, global distribution, and, and it all built up and kind of snowballed over time. So, you know, I still can't quite believe that uh, <laughs> it's become what it is. It's, it's, it's great. I mean, we never sleep or anything, but, you know, it is good.
4: <laughs> we're glad that you don't sleep, because I think I can speak collectively for most of your readers that your stuff is brilliant, and everybody does love the dark, and you have embraced it wholeheartedly, and done such a great job
5: i'm just gonna say one thing which i, I love this line um, uh peter watts uh, who writes some wonderfully dark science fiction he said that i can't believe that you've made a business out of basically just publishing your friends so and i just said well we are lucky enough that uh, all of our friends are brilliant writers so that turned out quite well i think
4: <laughs> yeah i think it's a win-win for everyone now, your work has appeared in so many different venues, On Spec, Prairie Fire, the Tesseract's Anthologies, Evolved, Chilling Tales, Vernet Green, Transversions, Tattle Creek, Abyss and Apex. Should I keep going? I don't know. But there's so many places that your work has appeared. Do you have to have, you know, a dedicated shelf in your house just for all the different places that your work has come out?
5: There was a point, at one point I did, because uh, most of most of what I published, in fact, is poetry. I've, I haven't published a great deal of fiction, to be honest. And then the poetry was just, you know, I had a little shelf in my poetry section, because, of course, all of our books are separated by genre, because we're OCD nutcases. But then it was, I found that irritating, because then it wasn't alphabetical like it should have been so I find that I found that annoying so then everything just got shelved so it was alphabetical and the anthologies were at the beginning of the section shelved by anthology title because I didn't always remember the editor and uh, and so that for my own personal sense of tidiness and how things should be shelved worked much better than having my own personal shelf which looked sloppy
4: the librarian and you took over
5: yeah that's true And, well, my mother mother was a librarian, so I, I come by it honestly.
4: With February just finishing, we spent the month discussing women in horror. Given your experience editing dark fiction written by women, do you think they bring a different perspective to the fiction table? Well, I
5: think, again, this is one of those, for me, yes and no answers. I think that there are certainly many horrors in the world that are experienced primarily by women, that men generally don't experience. But while well, I think something like Women in Horror Month is such a great thing to have, I also, uh, to paraphrase uh, Clint Eastwood at the Oscars many years ago, I look forward to a day when we don't need a Women in Horror Month. I think I try to look at it largely good writing is good writing and dark fiction that we're going to like is dark fiction that we're going like. to like. I don't know that there's a spe- specifically feminine sensibility that I look for or that I necessarily always experience as being quite different from a practical point of view women may be right women better because of course they're speaking from personal experience but then you could also say that men may be men better but again the point of being a writer is imagination and empathy and putting yourself into situations that don't really exist in the world and seeing things from multiple perspectives and so on. Perhaps it's not a useful construct to think that way. I don't know. I mean, this is one of these questions that I find myself going back and forth on how I think and feel about it. And then sometimes I think, yes, women absolutely do bring something different to the table and have a different perspective and are unique in what they're trying to say and do. And then other times I'm like, well, no, that's not true at all. This basically suggests that there's something lacking in what men are doing. And I am not the kind of feminist who believes that men suck and whatever they're doing is bad inherently because they are men because i think that's not again not a useful way to think about the world um i think that we both exist in the world uh the many genders we have exist in the world and all have their unique perspectives but all have universal things that we can all relate about and and draw on and experience together
4: good point i i tend to feel the same way the back and forth between do we need a women in horror month or don't we It's, it's, it's an interesting question.
5: Yeah.
4: Earlier, you mentioned advice and the questions that people ask you, particularly in your role as a publisher, you're probably approached at various conventions and events with a veritable bucket list of new author questions. What are two kernels of wisdom, aside from finish it, that you wish you had more, Mm -hmm. more time to share with others?
5: Um, I say this a lot, and, but I, I think it bears repeating. Um, don't be a dick. You'd think that that is a really simple thing and that most people would understand that, but in fact, many people do not understand what dickishness is. They think, oh, that's for all those other writers who are dicks. I'm totally not a dick. I'm very nice. Yeah, maybe you're not. I think that if you're convinced that you're very nice and never behaved badly, you should probably reflect and reconsider if that is in fact true. Uh, I think in general, if you behave with courtesy, if you're coming up to me at a convention and say, I sent you a submission back in uh, 2012 and you said this about it and I've rewritten this whole thing and I want to show it to you and I've brought it to you right now, can you look at it? You know, you are kind of infringing on my personal space and you're asking me to do something that I actually get paid to do and you're asking me to do it for free and you are in fact interrupting me at this convention where I am trying to do other business. And so that is the kind of dickishness that I think sometimes people don't think matters. But then also, I don't remember what I said to you in 2012. I have no freaking idea. I've read a billion manuscripts since then and worked on 60 books or something. And I absolutely do not recall what it was that I said to you. And that's just the human brain. That's not me in particular. It's that we can only contain so much and remember so much. And if I don't need to remember it after that particular moment, I'm probably not going to. So that is just the brutal truth of it. It's not... But I don't care necessarily, but I don't care (laughs) because it isn't relevant in the moment, which, again, is making you sound like a giant tool.
4: It's probably not necessarily that you don't care. It's that you don't have time to care all the time, every moment of every day. It's the sheer volume. That makes me sound better. And that person coming up to you, their interaction with you consisted of one moment, one email, one response. Whereas your interactions are hundreds back and forth between that and a hundred other people who were in your slush pile. So it's nice to hear it from the other side and to take that look to walk in someone else's shoes.
5: Yeah. The thing is, I am a big believer in helping out where I can and in talking to people if they have questions and whatnot. So if you're polite to me, that's really all I ask.
4: It's a reasonable question to ask for. Many people might not have heard that your poetry collection, The Animal Bridegroom, actually has an introduction by Neil Gaiman. Yeah. And I must say, I'm not sure what makes you more unique and individual. That or your fondness of gin and tonics and fondness for bright red lipstick, which are both in your bio. I'm looking at you and all that I know about the Sandra of 2016, but if you could actually have a chance to speak for five minutes with the Sandra of 1996, 20 years ago, what would you say to her?
5: I would say to her, you will get a book published and you will eventually not have to do horrible jobs and you will be able to do what you love. And and I think that that would be flabbergasting to '96 Sandra who thought that everything was just gonna suck forever and that's just how life worked. And so I I look back at at her and I think, don't worry, it's gonna get better. Also do push-ups because eventually your tits sag.
4: Yes. Would there be a, a number of lipstick that you would tell her buy two of because this is going to be your favorite shade?
5: <laughs> yes, I actually would because there is a Revlon lipstick that I love the color of and if they no longer make it. This particular red, it's so upsetting. And I have my little lip brush and I'm scraping the inside of it to get the last tiny bit out of it because the other one is, is good, but it's not exactly the same. Oh, you know me so well, Suzanne.
4: I've had a similar problem. I had this lipstick that I loved. It was very glittery. And I used to love wearing it, especially around the holidays. They don't make it anymore because these colors come and go. The drop of a hat. And I kick myself for not getting two of it because I loved that color.
5: Then sometimes I wonder, did they discontinue it because it had like red dye number five in it?
4: That's right. The sparkles (laughs) were actually toxic. Little did you know. For this next segment, we're going to do a bit of a quick question answer. Think of the first notion that pops into your head. So are you ready? Yeah. Imagine a prison of eternal misery. Is it hot or cold? Cold. Do you like your horror with plenty of dismemberment or more of a squeaky floor in the night?
5: Um, I'm more of a squeaky floor in the night, what you can't see, subtle kind of horror.
4: What are three of your favorite words? Pithed, zeppelin, discombobulate. What was the first one again? Pithed,
5: P-I-T-H-E-D. Like you do to a frog. Right. I blame that on Gary Larson, actually, because he used to have this uh, fun little cartoon where there's these two frogs in the car and one frog is saying to the frog that's driving something like, what's wrong with you, Frank? You're driving like you've been piffed. And it made me laugh and laugh.
4: That's hilarious. Okay. Eggs or pancakes? Eggs. Stickers on your laptop or pure out-of-the-box plane?
5: Out-of-the-box plane.
4: Oh, I'm a total stickers girl myself. Music while writing or total silence? Silence. Again, we differ. Yeah, I'm more of a music girl. Okay. Thank you for participating in this interview. You've certainly given our listeners plenty to think about. The top three being finish what you start, don't be a dick, and buy two <laughs> of your favorite lipstick.
5: Yes, I think that that is excellent advice to go on with in, in life in general.
4: Well, thank you so much for coming out. I really hope and wish for continued and extensive success with Cheezine and T-Series and your next poetry and short fiction endeavors.
5: Thank you so much, Suzanne. It's been wonderful and happy Women in Horror Month. And uh, go out and read, fellow babies. Go out and read.
2: That was Suzanne Church in conversation with Sandra Casturi. You can find Sandra online at s-a-n-d-r-a-k-s-t-u-r-i dot And you can find us online at lovehorror.biz slash h-w-a. And now Sephra will let you know where you can go to see real live horror writers in person.
1: Yes, we are going to be all over the place this year. Uh, the Horror Writers Association Ontario chapter is going to have a booth at Toronto Comic-Con on March 18th to 20th. So please be sure to come by and see us, and we will have prizes, and we have buttons, and we may even be able to uh, model some T-shirts for you. And after that, we ha- we will be at Las Vegas, um, not as the official chapter, but the Horror Right Association. StokerCon 16 is... Uh, May 11th to 16th in Las Vegas and this also is the Stoker Award Banquet and Horror University uh, where you can take courses to learn how to become a horror writer and all sorts of fantastic guests of honour like Jack Ketchum will be there now there is also Dark Carnival in July July 9th and 10th uh, put on by Rue Mord Magazine the HWA Ontario chapter will have a booth there And going back to April, we have Ad Astra here in Toronto. Now, the chapter will not officially have a booth at Ad Astra, but a number of us will be on various panels or see us drinking in the green room. Whatever, just come by, say hi, and uh, ask us about the HWA and how you too can join. Um, the World Horror Convention is the same weekend as at Astra, so if you're not in Toronto, make sure you get your butt over to Provo, Utah and hang out with some of with Brian Keene and a, Jeff Strand and a whole pile of horror greats uh, who are going to be at the World Horror Convention. In July, um, not only is there Dark Carnival, but there's Nikon, which is in Rhode Island. That's the third week of July every year it's been going for about 30 years with special guest Joe Hill this year and a number of HWAers are often seen at Nikon and what happens at Nikon stays at Nikon and the last thing that we know right now that's on our plate but certainly there will be many more things is Fan Expo on Labor Day weekend uh, here in Toronto and we will have a nice shiny booth for you to come by win prizes and come and see what we're all about
3: Join us next time when we talk more horror and feature an interview between author Crystal Burke and special guest Linda Addison. And tonight we're going to close with something a bit different. We're going to close with a full-length version of our theme song. The track is called Beauty Wounded by Leslie Curvoist, and that's from her EP, The Songs of Amergan. You can find Leslie on Facebook at facebook.com slash lesliesings. That, that's L-E-S-L-E-A, or at reverbnation.com lesliesings Until we meet again, Unpleasant Screams.